Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I wanted to remind you that if you are interested in downloading any information that might be of interest to you from my website with subjects that I think would be of interest to you, please go to rachelbernsteintherapy.com and find some things there. And also, you can find some webinars that you're able to pay for to order And they are for people who have been involved in cultic groups or have been in relationships with controllers. And another one for the loved ones, the friends and family, those who want to know how to reach out and help their loved one who is in a bad situation or has come out of one and needs extra support. I also want to make sure that you know about the support group that I run every other week on Zoom. You can find out about it also on my website. And if your situation and experience that you've had qualifies for this kind of support group where you've been involved in a cult or in a relationship with a controller and you want to be able to get some support or you are the family and friends of someone who has been involved in a situation like that, and you want to be a part of the support group to hear from some of the former members to see what helped them leave and what they're needing since they left. It is a really wonderfully supportive support group, and it is something that I've been doing for many years, and it's quite gratifying and has been a very useful tool for a lot of people, but also helps pierce the isolation that a lot of people are feeling because they can connect with each other. For today, I have Erin Birchwell. She is a Columbus, Ohio-based florist, a designer, and illustrator. She grew up as a faculty kid on the campus of Bob Jones University, an extremely conservative Christian college known for its strict rules and controversial beliefs. In 2014, Aaron interviewed with Grace, an independent ombudsman who reviewed the university's mishandling of sexual assault reports. She and others chose to break their anonymity in the report when the school fired the Grace team. Erin manages her own floral business, specializing in events, decor, and commissioned murals. And some of her work was recently featured online by Architectural Digest this year. She has illustrated three children's picture books about Ohio and enjoys visiting schools and teaching students about publishing. Erin's commitments extend well beyond her business, and she is a dedicated volunteer teacher and a fundraiser for many organizations, including nursing homes, women's prisons, after-school programs, and children's museums. She lives with her husband, Jason, her daughter, Gracie, and her two dogs, Fred and Mose. Here is Erin now. I'm so happy to be talking to Erin Birchwell today because I love 
first of all, meeting new people who have really interesting stories to share and who are also doing some great things for the community and educating the public. And I love to offer this platform to give them even more of a voice in the community. And also because there is a lovely connection to someone on our staff. So it's really nice. It's like keeping it within the family, so to speak. I would love for you to take a moment to introduce yourself and then we'll start talking. Well, thank you for having me very much. I appreciate it. And Andrew Pledger is a keeper, so keep him. (laughs) Yeah. My name is Erin Birchwell and my maiden name was Macaulay. I grew up at Bob Jones University um, as a faculty brat on the campus. I was born in 79 and I was there till 2001 at Bob Jones. Okay. So for people who might not have heard Andrew already speak about this, can you describe a little bit about Bob Jones University, what it is and how it's distinctively different from, let's say, a mainline university? There are a lot of differences. Some of them are more subtle than others. So my parents were faculty. My dad taught music. My mom taught Shakespeare. They really believed in Dr. Bob Jones Jr. and his message and senior, and they really believed in the mission. And I will say back in the 80s, 90s, when I grew up, for Christian schools, Bob Jones had really, really great fine arts. Um, The academics were solid for the most part. And um, I think that was a draw to a lot of people to come for college, just because if your parents uh, were going to make you go to a Christian college, then Bob Jones was a pretty good, uh, pretty good fit. And um, so my parents really believed in the mission. And when you join Bob Jones as a faculty member, at least when they did, the whole family's in. So if the dad works on staff, then the mom has to have some sort of a job, whether it's in the dining coming or a lot of people got put in the press because it's a whole family thing. You go to Bob Jones, if you're born to a faculty member, you go from birth through college and you don't have a choice about that. You're not even allowed to homeschool. Now, again, I don't, that may have changed now, but um, you're put in the nursery there and then you graduate college. Part of the perks of, of teaching there, at least back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, my parents were there. Part of the perk was, well, we, we can't pay you much at all, very low wages, but we'll feed you, we'll feed your family, we'll give your kids free education. And the campus itself is really very, self-sufficient. There's a dry cleaner on campus, a post office box. I mean, a lot of people that I grew up with, I would say most of the faculty staff kids I grew up with actually had a house lit. They lived on campus and rarely even left because you'd have your meals and everything. In fact, I knew a couple, more than one faculty member growing up uh, playing in their house and opening their fridge. And there was just a cold pitcher of water in there because all the meals, everything was eaten even on Sundays when the dining coming wasn't open, they would send you home faculty or students with a sack, we call it a sack lunch. So faculty would even get a Sunday dinner, so to speak. Um, so it was all, it's all in the family and it was all right there on the campus, most of it. Incredible. So on the one hand, that sounds really delightful if you want to be a part of the community and you want to also save yourself time and effort and you everything is right there. And if you're needing to have some freedom and have some elbow room and kind of push out the walls, makes it harder because you don't really have an excuse to have to leave to because everything is right there. So, you know, it sort of depends on how you're feeling about being there and how you're being treated when you're there. 
my husband and I, when we finally left fundamentalism, we, we basically started over with friends. Um, we were in our thirties and those groups that you're so busy doing so many church and school activities that, um, you don't even really have anyone on the outside. Um, and a lot of people love to say, well, you had a choice. Uh, you had a choice when you went there, you signed a contract and you knew the rules ahead of time. You know, again, that might be some of the case now, but growing up, if I had as a faculty kid, if I had even looked at going somewhere else for high school or college, my parents could have been fired. There was a lot of pressure on faculty staff kids also because other things could get your parents fired as well. Um, there was a guy on back campus and some of his kids rented an R movie. It wasn't anything that was bad, but you were not allowed to watch, you know, anything above a PG level. Um, the whole family cleared out, um, after they got caught and everybody, everybody left. So they, both parents lost their job in. So there was pressure to not mess up. And, you know, like you said, it, it's easier to stay. And that's why a lot of people stay. It was difficult breaking out and starting over. It was really difficult, but you get to a certain point and you think I've got free education. I don't know anyone on the outside. I'm just going to put my head down and get through it. And that was my strategy towards the end anyway. Right. So then I wonder also, you know, being um, a child of faculty, you know, I grew up with parents who were, who did a lot of community work and were the presidents of different things or the chairman of the board of this or whatever, um, charitable thing or summer camp or whatever I was going to. And you needed to kind of act in a certain way because you knew you were being held up to a higher standard. What was it like for you? I didn't realize until after I left that even amongst the faculty staff kids, there was almost like a hierarchy. So the staff kids, I know now um, in my adulthood, I'm friends with staff kids. They felt like they were at the bottom tier of how they were treated. And then there were faculty kids and then there were administrator kids up here too. <laughs> so um, there were definitely, you could get by with a lot more depending on who your parents were, what department they were in. And by when I say by getting by, I mean, you could watch a PG-13 movie on the slide. Like, that's what I mean by getting by. It was very, very strict. So, you know, every, everything is dictated to you down to what you wear, what you're allowed to listen, what you're allowed to see. From seventh grade on, all, girls wear pantyhose and a skirt, even off campus, wherever they go. So the rules weren't just when you were on campus. It was, that was your whole lifestyle if your parents, you know, t were on staff. Wow. Okay. Uh, right. So, and can you spend a moment also talking about who Bob Jones was, you know, like, who, well, what do you know about him that you could let us know about? Well, there's three Bobs, the founder, senior, his son, junior, Bob the third, uh, Stephen Jones, and then Steve Pettit was the last president. He broke the Jones mold. So Dr. Bob, Jones Sr., I'm not a historian, but he he founded the school. It was, I think, in Tennessee first, and it landed in Greenville, I think, 75-ish years ago. And the mission was, you know, to have a wholesome place for kids to go, you know, in the 60s where, you know, there were a lot of drugs, sex, rock and roll, uh, safe, safety, I, all of those things. He wanted a, an, a Christian oasis where kids could actually have good academics and then his son, Bob Jones Jr., really brought in some great fine art as well. You know, it's a really great concept, like you said, in theory. Dr. Bob Sr. believed that the janitor should make the same as the PhD. So everybody had this very 
low pay, but again, everything was like right on campus so that, you know, your kids were well-educated and fed. So. So then I'm wondering, just talking about your experience, having grown up there and when you're saying, you know, leaving fundamentalism, there are people who will say, you know, once you are raised a particular way, that's, that is who you are. And you really have to work very hard and take a lot of risks to leave something that, that is so insular and where the expectation I'm sure is so high and the control around it too, to, to stay within the fold. So let's learn more about you and about what that kind of life was like for you and when you started kind of looking at it differently. I might add in here also, I should have explained more when I was talking about Bob Jones and how it's a network. Oh, go for it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, okay. So Bob Jones is interesting in that it's a university, but it is the mothership. We called this back in the 90s, we even called it the mothership. It's the mothership for thousands of other churches all over. It's a, it's a big network of churches that we call fundamentalism. And when Bob Jones makes a rule, uh, movie theaters going to movies was a big one. That was a huge no-no. Could have gotten you kicked out or at least 100 demerits. When Bob Jones changed that policy, all of a sudden, all the churches connected, they all like changed the policy. When women were allowed to start wearing pants to like Wednesday night church, Bob Jones did it first. And then everybody kind of takes their cues from that. So growing up, there was a network. So my husband grew up in a church in Ohio that was affiliated with Bob Jones, but it was the same pressure in the youth group to go there. And, you know, if you don't go there, you won't get any financial aid, you're on your own, or you can go there and even your church will help pay to get you there. So, you know, this was before the internet also, (laughs) we started college. So that's why a lot of kids, that's how they were getting a lot of kids really is all these other churches take their cues from Bob Jones. It's a network above anything else I would say. And when you graduated, um, when we graduated in the late 90s, early 2000s, one of the offices on campus had an actual physical notebook. And when you were looking for a job, you were supposed to go to that notebook and check for the approved churches in that city because you were encouraged, highly encouraged to not take a job in a city where there wasn't a Bob Jones approved church. When we moved to Columbus in 2003, Columbus, Ohio, there were four approved churches on the list. So even after we left, we stayed with a church affiliated. So when we broke out of fundamentalism, it was, it was 500 miles away from the mothership, but it was still the whole, the same process. And it was starting over and all that fun stuff. You know, I wonder too about information being transmitted from church to church, from location to location. If you, let's say, developed a certain reputation, would that follow you too? Just about, yes. Um, They actually have a file room. They keep files on people. And everybody kind of just knew that. But when I, my first, I took the first out-of-state job I was offered. I I graduated on the off semester and I was a speech ed, dramatic productions, art person. And so I took the first Christian school job out-of-state that I could. I just wanted out of the state of South Carolina. Grew up there. They were supposed to fax over my transcripts and they did. And I went to grab them one day, something in my file there, this file in Wilmington, North Carolina. I just started teaching there. It was supposed to be my transcripts. 
the first two pages were all kinds of medical records when I was a baby on the front page. It said zero to three, uh, you know, about lifting head or something, six to nine. Somewhere in there, I just remember seeing that I was slow or late to crawl. And I was like, why is this on the top page of my transcripts for my job? So they, I mean, they kept, they did, they keep files on people. When I've watched documentaries about Scientology, I mean, that's, I mean, that's kind of the thing. If you do something, it does go in your file. Now, as far as after you graduate, just depends on how deep, you know, neck deep, head deep your church is in with Bob Jones. For example, after my sister graduated, she went to grad school in Illinois, Champaign, Illinois. Bob Jones has these little drama and music teams that they you can be a part of. I was one one semester. They travel around. They do church services in schools. They collect offerings every week. They had to they had to call back to the mothership and say how much money they got from each church, which was also kept on record. So these drama teams, music teams, they stay in people's homes when they visit all these network churches. So my sister graduated from college done with Bob Jones. My parents are still on faculty, but she says, I'll keep a couple of kids in my house overnight. So she did. And somewhere in there, somebody went through her DVDs and found a movie that was rated R. It was some sort of action movie. It wasn't like, you know, anything. They reported that to the leaders who reported it back to Bob Jones. My dad got called in by the Dean of Fine Arts. (laughs) I believe it was the Dean of Fine Arts. He got called in to explain why his daughter who had graduated in Illinois, um, had a rated R movie in her house. So that, I mean, it does follow you. You, you, you think you're getting outside the bubble by moving away, but if you're in one of those churches, it's a glass house. So everybody knows everybody's business. I think about people raised like me, I think, um, outside of the world of the internet and how you could make a ton of mistakes and no one would know. And now with video phones and also people just posting about everything they're doing, it, it, there is a record. And a lot of people, you know, think, you know, God forbid if there had been something like that when I was growing up, because you're learning, you you are making mistakes. You don't have your prefrontal cortex developed and solidified quite yet. And so you're just going to have poor judgment. Even when you're in such a controlled environment, still you're growing and you're learning. And just knowing that that is going to follow you around, I'm sure, is very stressful and does a lot for keeping you in check and probably a lot for behavior modification. I've been through a lot of professional therapy and um, um, I have also had to take medication occasionally for anxiety or depression. That was frowned upon. Again, here's the interesting thing I think about Bob Jones, as opposed to, let's say, happy, shiny people, which we all knew would would come up at some point. So the Duggars, uh, the Gothard movement, when I watched the documentary on that, there were so many similarities, but I kind of noticed that they had terms for everything. Like when they talked about eye traps for men, I had never heard the term eye trap, but when they said it, I knew exactly what they meant. And I knew that I would have been accountable for that as well. I think there's a, a sneakiness almost to the Bob Jones culture in that they don't put this stuff a lot of time in writing or on recordings, but it's definitely there. All those rules are there. They just, they don't have specific terms for a lot of them. And it's difficult to describe that culture. Right. And, and I think, you know, 
people who work with me after having been involved in very structured environments talk about feeling like there is this watchful eye looking over their shoulder, making sure that no one has noticed them doing something, whatever it is, uh, even if it's really not considered a bad thing, you know, by regular society, but still they're they're worried about people giving them a hard time or judging them. And so just not being able to fully relax and enjoy yourself is probably like you get used to being in that state of being hypervigilant, which is which I think, you know, you're releasing adrenaline. It's exhausting, actually. Yes. It's like your body's in flight or fight all the time for for everything. I used to have anxiety checking my mailbox when we first got married. I just thought that was normal because you could maybe get a bad letter. But growing up, uh, you had to check your post office box every day because there could be a call slip in there from the dean of students or dean of men or women. So I, I know several people who still have nightmares about forgetting to check their, if you forgot to check your post office box, you would be in double trouble for not answering the call slip. So there are little things have crept into my life that I realized most people don't have anxiety, PTSD reaction to everything that happens. Getting pulled over for a speeding ticket was the end of the world for me because I broke a rule. I broke a law, you know? So I've definitely had to work a lot on overcoming that hyper-awareness, thinking everyone is looking at me at every time uh, when they're just not. You know, it's reminding me of talking to people who were in Nexium that one of the things that was exhausting, not only was that you had to be available to sit through workshops and classes that would go on for hours and hours and hours, and you had to just be just like with prayer, right? Going to any kind of a, a service that's fundamentalist, it's going to go on for a long time. That uh, Keith and the other instructors, Keith Ranieri, the leader of it, would have these readiness drills. And all hours of the night, you would get a text and you would have to respond right away, right away. And if it wasn't, you know, within a few seconds, you would be berated. So imagine never being able to put your phone away, never turning your ringer off, always being on call. Yes. It's not a fun feeling. I, I remember too, for years when we went to movie theaters as a married couple, I I always was just looking around to see, oh no, is anybody here? Are they going to see us? Right. So back to you about your story. So you obviously, because you left, there was something that either occurred or was growing inside of you that was just making you feel like you needed to make a change in your life. And I'm wondering if there is an event that took place or if it was just sort of a combination, a cumulative impact that it was having, what was it for you? Not only did I grow up as a faculty brat. We attended a very strict church that was affiliated with Bob Jones as well. My dad was the music pastor and um it was a it's a you know church of probably a thousand people, eight hundred to a thousand people it was it was it was fairly large um for those circles, but it was even stricter than Bob Jones in, in as far as women and rules. It was a lot closer or is still a lot closer to the Gothard movement where there's a lot of quiverful stuff happening. There are, um, you know, women wear very long skirts, don't cut their hair, don't wear makeup, etc. My parents were never uh, as strict as most of the people at that church, but we were under the watchful eye of the church. So even out of college, no, I was in college one year, I was doing yard work off campus in my parents' house, which is about three miles from campus. 
And somebody at the church turned me in because my dad was a staff member. So, and I had pants on for yard work. So, and then I think I was 20 years old when that one happened. So I had a kind of a double whammy. My family did. We had the church and then we also had Bob Jones and they would work in conjunction sometimes, but when it was convenient, then they wouldn't. One other bit of background that's important before I launch fully into my story is um, Dr. Bob III actually asked my parents to take a mission trip every year from Bob Jones starting in 1991. It, it went to Russia and back all the, you know, through all the Eastern Europe countries. In 91, it was still Soviet Union when we went. We handed out Bibles, but it was like a mission trip that my dad took. It was a choir and I got to go on it for, well, from the time I was in seventh grade till I graduated from college. So um, we had a lot of great experiences outside of Bob Jones. I think that's one one of the reasons I also knew from an early age I wanted out. I didn't want to stay there. So we, my the downside of all that was my sister and I, from a very young age, we were just around college kids nonstop. So the church we were with, they have a lot of those people believe in courtship, which is also something like the Duggars do, where you're you're kind of matched. You have a little say in it, but you don't really date. It's this person is a good husband material. So if you start dating, it's 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 a match. You know that you don't date around. Um, it's a looser version of just being um, married to someone you don't know. <laughs> you know them, but it, you know it's that um, courtship, what it's called. So my parents decided when I was fifteen that this guy that I liked and had gone on their team was was a good match to marry. So we started courting. And on campus, there are things you can do. Like there's something called artist series where you go sit in an auditorium and you listen to some really great um, music, but you can go on dates on campus here and there. There was, we joked, there was a six inch rule. You couldn't touch the other sex, but um, that's where the pink and blue sidewalk rumors have come into effect for years. People said they have pink and blue sidewalks. The rule is, there are all these covered sidewalks. After 5 p.m., I think on a weekday, you had to walk separately from the opposite sex. So I think that's where the sidewalk rumor came in. But anyway, so I was kind of matched with this guy and he was in college and I was in high school. So by the time I got to my senior year of high school, I decided, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking at all this stuff that I don't like and I just knew I didn't want to get married to him. He's the nicest guy in the world. We're still friends. Nothing against him. But I just knew I didn't want to marry him. Well, my parents didn't give me a choice. Um, And that's another long story. But, you know, you always have this thing over looming over you that you'll get kicked out of Bob Jones. You'll get your parents in trouble. But on top of it, if you were church disciplined, that was a whole other thing. So church discipline is like where they excommunicate someone and they ring you in front of the whole church. It's kind of like a public shaming. And I was always terrified. I mean, I was more terrified of that, I think, than anything Bob Jones did. But um, so I, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a choice. Along the way, I met a guy. I know now there was some grooming involved. He was also a grad student. He was something called a preacher boy. That means he was studying to be a pastor. And um, he was my friend and he went on my parents' mission trips a couple of times. But I liked him a lot and I looked up to him and I, in my own little Bob Jones mind, I mean, problems are so much bigger now, I know, but in my own little high school Bob Jones mind, I was really stressed about this thing. Like, I don't want to marry him. I don't want to, yeah, it was, it was a big deal for me at the time. I know now it sounds silly. So he said, well, let's go. I was a freshman in college now. So let's go, let's chat about it. So I was like, all right, let's go. He, we drove, he drove us to a park and 
I'd gone many places with him before and he was a friend. And I said, okay. And then I started crying. And before I know it, he's touching me, he's grabbing me everywhere. Um, He grabbed my head, made me kiss him. And I pushed away and I said, take me home. So we went home and uh, I thought that's it. And that started a year, a cycle of a year or more of just um, getting together with him him taking it way too far, me saying that's it. But then he would write these really eloquent, long apology notes. And he was he was a, a big guy on campus. Um, they have something called a, a preaching contest, which is as, as ridiculous as it sounds. You preach and then they judge. And he, he was in that and he was always up front, you know, in front of people. He was the big man on campus. So it went on, like I said, here and there for a long time. And eventually the school found out. And, um, so the school found out that there had been physical contact between us and I was saying it wasn't fully consensual and he was saying it was. And so it accumulated to a head and I had to go in, I was 20 years old. I had to go in with my parents and in front of the Dean of men and the Dean of students, I had to read what had happened to me in this, like whatever, how many page document I typed. So it was humiliating. You know, again, I'm 20 years old and I have to admit all this stuff, which is, was breaking the rules too. And so when I was finished, one of them said, you have really excellent grammar. And then the other one said, well, what were you wearing when these things, these incidents would occur? And at the time, I, I did not know where he was going with that. And I I was in all, I mean, I was always, always in appropriate attire. I was terrified of getting in trouble, terrified. So after that, my parents were told um, to kind of drop it. I have letters. My mom saved everything. There's all kinds of correspondence that she saved. So I have a letter from Dr. Bob III's wife, two of them actually telling my mom, well, I'm really sorry what happened to Aaron, but I think that it's best that nothing is done because it just looks, you know, it kind of looks bad for the girl was what she implied in a couple different notes. Uh, they, it went all the way to Dr. Bob III. My parents wrote him, but the school determined that, um, they weren't going to take sides, but I started noticing that I had a big start letter A, it felt like on me all around campus. I started not getting approved for theater roles or I started not getting approved for society offices where, and he kept getting more and more promotions. So they said they didn't take sides, but um, in the end, um, it, it certainly felt like they were siding with the guy. In the middle of this whole circus, my church then decided to get involved as well. So the guy who took advantage of me for that long. His dad was a real bulldog and had some sway over... He gave a large amounts of money at one time to the school and has, has an organization um, connected to the school. And he threatened to sue us. He threatened to sue Bob Jones. He threatened to sue my church if I ever talked about what had happened because he wanted him to be a pastor there. Well, if that story had gotten out, he would not be a pastor, at least in South Carolina. So... We didn't know at the time, but we started getting really scary notes, which I also found in my parents' attic. Some of them were threatening, like, um, you need to forgive. Heyman made his own gallow. The last piece of correspondence we got was a photo of my head hanging on gallows, like they'd drawn the gallows and then posted my head. Yeah. And it was basically like, don't stop saying, you know, don't say anything. So my church got involved. They, they claimed they were trying to help, but this guy's family, they were threatening to sue the church. They were all, all over me, you know, not telling my story. So 
We met at the church on February 13th at midnight. We met at midnight because his family didn't want anyone to see that there was any issue. So they set the room up like a courtroom, like um, at the head was the pastor and he was at a table and he had an elder on either side. And then there was a table. It was like, it was like the courtroom of defense over here, you know, counsel over there. Um, it was me and my parents. I'm 20 years old. Uh, it was him. He's like 25 and his parents. And then he got engaged during all this. And so the girl he was engaged to and her parents were also in this room. So long story short, they made us all write a statement out that we were going to agree to disagree and never speak about it again. So I have the contract. I have all the signatures, but we signed it. And then they made me and they made him stand up and apologize to our families. And then after that, I was told, don't talk about it under now under church discipline and, and also with his family. So I didn't talk about it. I mean, close friends knew about it, but I didn't talk about it for 14 years. And then the grace report came along. And that was the first chance I ever had to sit in front of people and tell the whole story in one sitting. Yeah. Let's dig into, first of all, what it's like for a woman to have a man who is highly respected at his church be someone who was very handsy and someone who takes advantage. Knowing also, if they're raised in the same environment, what that woman, young woman, is going to be seen as if this story comes out. I mean, it is it is marking you with a scarlet letter. It sounds like he just didn't care about that, about doing that. The fact that he was grabbing at you and, you know, touching you in a way that you didn't invite or want, and then could write in a beautiful way to be able to kind of make it okay somehow and to come across on paper like he's this wonderful, thoughtful person who really cares about you and et cetera. I don't know what the content was, but I'm sure it was like, you know, PR for himself. And then you had to endure going through that many times. And the fact that you were even on the witness stand at all, under any kind of questioning, doubting about your character, et cetera, is how it's been for so many people, for so many women throughout history, that just their mere participation, even as the victim, makes them suspicious and makes them be looked at in terms of their character, uh, which is just a horrific thing. And again, he knew that if it came to light, this is what would happen to you. So it shows how much he actually cared about you. And the thing is, once you, you know, once somebody, I wasn't raped. I, I, I have friends who were raped on campus and have still never felt comfortable to really talk out loud to many people about, but you feel like you get defiled. That would be the term they would use. And so then you think I've got to stick it out with this person because no one will have me now that I'm you know, a tainted vessel or whatever um, story. Once you're a tainted uh, vessel, then, you know, you're trash for the girl, not not for the guy. Right. For the girl, not for the guy. And uh, it's it's maddening how much that happens. OK, so here also you have this church. The church knows you. They know who you are, you know, and you would assume then that they would have your back. Right. If they really know you to be someone who's good and, you know, you care about doing the right thing, but it didn't seem to matter. So my church is such a funny thing. 
the pastor told my dad that he was trying to help us because of this threatening lawsuit. So the church, the pastor himself anyway, I mean, afterwards and during told me he believed me, but then they made me go through this whole humiliating process. But, you know, the very first podcast I ever did, somebody asked me this simple question and it just threw me for the biggest loop. This was probably six years ago. Somebody said to me, why didn't your dad just say, no, we're not doing this meeting? And my parents believed me, which I thought was a lot more than most parents at that church would. I have a friend who, uh, her parents still don't really talk to her. It's been 20 years um, for mistakes that she they think she made. And it never occurred to me. I, I always just thought because they believed me that they were on my side, but it never occurred to me that, yeah, I don't know why either parent didn't say, no, we're not going through the charade. But the problem was in these churches and, and in that Bob Jones movement, that God ordained whoever is in charge. So they don't go as far as Catholicism was saying that we we only can talk to God. They, you can talk to God, but if it's your God-ordained authority, then you cannot question that. And if you even try to do that, then you're going to be blacklisted. So I, I feel like my dad felt as though he didn't really have a choice about, you know, the church leadership said, come do this, then that's what you do. Right. Okay. So, you know, one of the things that people will ask me about is how you define uh, a religion and how it's different from a cult or how a cult is different from a religion. And one of the things that I see as a similarity, although it overlaps with fundamentalism, is unquestioning devotion, unquestioning following of the leader of the teachings, the theology. You just go along with it. And that so often happens. It's the idea, this Robert J. Lifton idea of doctrine over person, that the doctrine matters more than really looking at Aaron, knowing who Aaron is, and really being able to come to her defense if needed, but really have a very clear sense of her character. Right. And it's just so sad. It it affects so many people. It's not just victims of the Grace Report. It's it's supposed everybody under them is a victim in some way. I mean, they treated the faculty terribly. Not only did they not pay them, I mean, and I mean, these wages are really low. They, it, it's a little better now, but when my parents were there, it, it was very low and they were promised a retirement. And Dr. Bob III took up this, this, this fund. He went from churches, there are videos of him on YouTube saying, we're never going to forget our elder, you know, our faculty. This is the called the Forsake Me Not Fund, the Promise Fund, and we're going to take care of them. And then they said the fund ran out of money in the early 2000s. And so my parents don't have retirement now. And they gave, you know, combined more than 80 years of their life to this place. As soon as they both were let go, nobody in that town, I mean, they were there 43 and 42 years. Nobody in that town checked on them. I mean, maybe two people after COVID. I mean, once you're out, it doesn't matter how much you've given. You're out. I mean, you're out. You know, you're you're done. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. Okay. So all of these experiences are going to really sour you on this whole, I think this whole world. Did it make you question yourself at all? Because sometimes that gets confusing for people because they're so used to being trained to be introspective and to be critical of the self. Yeah. I mean, I... I second, I still second guess myself all the time. Again, I've been through loads of very helpful therapy, but I, I still question a lot of stuff that I do. Like, can I do this? Is it okay? And I have a really great husband and I have a great 
church. I was soured towards all religion, all Christian schools when we left the the one up here and it, it wasn't it wasn't pleasant. And um I said, that's it. I'm done. I mean, I grew up in Christian ed. It doesn't work. I'm not going back. You know, I it was really, really uh awful how people are still treated. And, and in fact, again, even though we moved 500 miles away, the church we were in happened to hire after we were there a pastor who is best friends with the guy who did all that stuff to me. So when he came and took over the church, I I was like, oh great, like I'm I'm toast now. I moved 500 miles away. I thought I was doing great. I started at was I started a drama program at their Christian school. I mean, we had amazing performances, and as soon as that guy came in, he was here not very long. He, he says, "I'm bringing up this guy, this preacher boy. I'm bringing him up to do a family conference at our church." And so my husband went in and said well, we're not going to that, you know, X, Y, and Z. And we were told that we could either go to the services and, and sit there. Um, I was told to forgive, even though nothing happened. So, so I, and he said, we're going to go out to eat afterwards, the all six of us, and you're going to show that you've forgiven. And my husband just said, absolutely not. We are not doing that. And um, so we, we walked away. And then after that, you know, I wasn't allowed to teach at the Christian school because I wasn't a great testimony and I wasn't forgiving. And so that's, you know, that's, um, yeah, there's been a lot of self-doubt. And um, again, e- with each each move from out of the Christian school, out of the church, I do feel as though it's still that it's the woman's fault. I just, I just, I still feel in, in the situations where we've had to leave or walk away. I've, I've always still felt like it's more of the wife's fault than it is the husband. You know, I was recently reading an article and I see this so often, reading an article about Burning Man, just a random article that came up in my feed yesterday. There was a picture of a family, a mother and a father and their young son. I don't remember what he was, elementary school age. And they're all dressed in kind of funky, artsy things. And they brought their son for many years in a row. And um, there are people who bring their kids. And the mom got skewered for being a neglectful, awful mom who endangered her son. She's right there with her husband, with the father, right there. He doesn't get mentioned in any of the social media posts about how how could she bring their son to Burning Man? Like, it's all on her. And that is how it is so often. And in fact, there was a 60 Minutes episode one time about the women somewhere in the South who were put in jail because they didn't protect their children from their abusive partner. And the abusive partner was beating them up and and threatening their life. The mothers are held up to this standard, and some of them were in jail for longer than the abuser because they didn't somehow protect their child. So it's pervasive in society to a great degree to focus in on the woman as being the the person who has done something wrong, but also are all the archetypes of the woman being the siren or the temptress or the one who, you know, brought their husband or could bring their husband into ruin somehow. And luckily he's strong. It's very hard to fight against. And my husband fully acknowledges um he was a guy growing up in fundamentalism and it, it was very different for him. And he, he realizes that he's always realized that, but 
you know, his sister had a much different experience. I obviously growing up on the campus and then with a combined whammy of my church, I had it different. I understand that you can go to a college for four years that's that strict and still have a great time and have fun. So I'm not negating that people have had great experiences. They're all, you know, my husband had a very good experience, but when he saw the way I was treated, you know, and and other women too, then he, when we finally said, no, we're done. And also I had a daughter by that point. And I mean, they, they catch them young. They label you young. She was two and a half and people were telling me in the nursery and at church, now that's a really strong will, baby. Um, the pastor told me you need to break that, that will like right now, meaning paddling. But again, unlike the Gothard movement, it's not, they don't say it, but it's definitely implied or, to, or told you in private. But, um, yeah, they're, they're big on, um, breaking the will and it's, it's a good thing in a little boy. It's not a good thing in a little girl. It's so awful. It's so unfair. Okay. So then I'm wondering if we can talk also a little bit more about this grace report, because it's really important, I think, to get into it and, and to be able to understand what it is and what it provided. Let's talk about that. So the grace report is really fascinating and we're up on the 10 year anniversary this year. So grace is an acronym for godly response to abuse in a Christian environment. They are an organization of former pastors, current pastors, lawyers, laymen who are passionate about exposing sexual assault and abuse and helping organizations that are Christian in terminology to change some things to prevent and to possibly make right something. So you can hire Grace. Uh, it's voluntary. So they come in and then they look at everything. Well, that's what Grace is. The big million dollar question is why did the university <laughs> hire them? Now, um, after Dr. Bob III stepped down, his son Stephen took over briefly in early 2000s. I, I really do believe I, we were friends with Stephen. Um, I really think he has a good heart. I think he found out that the board runs that place and I, it didn't last very long. A lot of us were like, well, maybe he'll come in and change a lot of stuff, but it just, it, it didn't happen that way. But we cannot figure out why he did that. Why did he hire Grace? We don't know. I mean, did he really want to know and make things right? Or, you know, was the school trying to stop online chatter? We don't really know why they hired it and why they would open themselves up to 300 pages of a report. But for whatever reason, they, they did. So they were hired in January of 2013. A lot more people came forward than they thought. I just was flipping through the report. There was something like 600 some people fit the online form like the for assault or knowing about assault. It was large. I mean, they narrowed it down to just a few examples of stories, but I was able to go and tell my my version of events. That was a huge part of my healing, just being able to sit and have people stand there and say, well, we believe you because we've seen this before. I mean, it was life-changing. So Grace came in and then one exactly one year later, the report was ready and it was going to come out. The school got to look at the report right before it publishes. And they looked at it and said, nope, we're firing Grace. So they fired Grace right before the report came out. There were a lot of steps for me getting out of fundamentalism. It wasn't one giant leap. There were definitely some higher, like skipping of steps at times. But when I went forward, my parents were still faculty there and I was afraid to talk out like publicly against the school. So it was all anonymous. We were all anonymous. Well, when they terminated it, the news got involved and 
the news, you know, there were chat rooms of, of survivors by this point. And the news said, well, we really want to talk to some victims to try to get them to reinstate. And so I struggled. I thought, should I go on the news? Like, cause they're asking. And I, I wound up saying, you know what? It's no, we did not go through all of this to not hear what this report is. So we should at least try. So several of us went on, on the news. I thought it was important that people saw that, uh, someone they know, like I'm a faculty staff kid. I grew up there. I have a wonderful, full, exciting life up in Ohio. I have no reason to be, you know, to go after somebody without cause. A lot of the rumors around the time Grace came out was that it was just, there weren't really a lot of victims. It was just a lot of disgruntled grads online. So I thought it was important that a faculty staff kid showed her face on the news because this is affecting, or potentially you could have kids affected by this. We're all suffering here. So I I went on the news and then that you know, once it hits the AP, then it kind of goes wildfire. And so then it went, I mean, all, went all the way to the New York Times and Al Jazeera had an article. Um, so then after that, they reinstated Grace because it was, it looked so bad in the news. It just, we were shocked that they did, but they, they did reinstate it. So the final report didn't come out till a year later because after they fired Grace, some people who were hesitant to talk to Grace before because they thought, well, Bob Jones is in bed with these people. They hired them. When they got fired, I know a couple victims that then went forward because it was like, oh, well, clearly they found something, you know, so they had to extend the report. So it was a whole nother year before it was published, but it was 300 pages of how the school has dealt with anywhere from mental health issues to um, obviously assault, what they do with victims, when do they report to the police, when do they not? And so it's a really detailed report. There's some interesting stats and numbers in there, but there were a lot of really sad stories. And I think the saddest part about the Grace Report, uh, there are two things. One is that they gave all these recommendations that the school essentially did none of. And it's 10 years later now, and they've done none of these things. But it's really sad because the Grace Report is like the first layer of skin on many, many, many. Like I know so many other people who've come, come to me privately, people I've grown up with, they have awful, horrible sexual assaults, rapes, everything. And I don't know that they'll ever come forward. But that Grace Report, it's just a teeny tiny sampling of what I'm finding out now is is really gone on there. So, uh, you know, the Grace Report, they they made some recommendations like a public apology. So Steve Pettit was president. Um, he gave two apologies. One, the first one seemed genuine. I, I remember it taking me very off guard. Like, oh my goodness, maybe they will actually say they're sorry for something or say they've been wrong and apologize. And then after it came out and they consulted with lawyers, he he made a different statement, which said, if first of all, their lawyer said that none of this stuff was true and they didn't interview victims. So Steve Pettit came out with a second statement after it was out that said, if you feel like we underserved you, then we're sorry. So it was um, not not really an apology. They also suggested things like a recovery assistance with a third party, file reviews, a memorial on campus, all these things. They were supposed to give an update at the five-year mark and they didn't give an update. In fact, they had one of the guys who was mentioned over and over again in the report spoke in chapel on that day, if I, if I remember it correctly. So there was no report. They, they basically said it's, it's just not true. 
Why they reinstated him, also a very good question. We don't know why. Why? But that's in a nutshell what the Grace Report is. Incredible. So, I mean, yeah, I was going to say that, you know, uh, on the one hand, it feels like something that would be wonderful if it, it were able to be used. Um, and I could imagine also a lot of institutions being very concerned about it being utilized and finding some excuse, some reason to not have it admitted and because they're not ready to have things revealed. The fact that you have this history of also hearing some really awful stories and knowing also that things were covered up. I mean, I wonder what that does to you, how how that also might even drive you now in, in what you're doing. It's such a, um, a strange feeling because it's a relief to know that by sharing your story and by sharing to people that it's okay to come forward and say what happened to you and that it wasn't your fault. Again, I had a lot of guilt thinking, well, I brought this on myself uh, as a, as a woman. It's tragic to hear these stories. I heard three more this week and people I knew and grew up with, I had no idea what was happening to them. And it's taken them 20 years to even just tell a friend. So it's confirming that the stuff's going to come out, you know, and it, it needs to come out for healing. So it's, it's confirming when people tell you these stories, but it's really just, I mean, it's really horrible what was going on right under our noses. Right. It's terrible. Oh. You know, there are th some things that leave a lasting impact more than others. And from your experience, what has been the most difficult thing to address internally? Like even just to get rid of it, like things that I think people are so programmed, especially uh, if they're connected to some kind of fear. Those seem to be hard. And I know a lot of people will say they feel fine, but they still have nightmares. And so still somewhere in their psyche, they're not quite settled yet and feeling safe. I'm wondering for you, what have been some of the challenging points? Well, self-doubt. I mean, there's a lot of gaslighting in these circles where you're the problem, you're the problem, you are the only problem. And sometimes you're not the problem. <laughs> they used to have this little kitschy saying that some of us secretly made fun of because we would have gotten demerits, but um, it was just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God and pleasing self. And they, they would do these little black and white statements like, and then you realize like, there are a lot more than two shelves in life. Like there's, there's an infinite number of shelves here. There aren't two of them. So, but um, I think, yeah, just with brainwashing and always thinking this is happening to me because God is a God of judgment and he's just, and he doesn't like that I messed up having to, I had to reframe, you know, it's like putting on a whole different camera lens. The church I'm in now, you know, it's it's not affiliated with Bob Jones in any way. And I had to readjust my view of God because I saw God as just wanting me to mess up um, with a lightning bolt. And that's not who God is at all. And he, ha he, hates, he hates this stuff. He hates it. And learning that, you know, number one, people aren't always watching you. Like you said, it's not a big deal in the real world, like being a minute late or not having your lipstick perfect or all these things that were such a big deal. Uh, I mean, you couldn't be late to anything. And I have a lot of friends who still have nightmares about trying to find their chapel seat or being on time because, you know, everything was a huge deal. So like you said, learning that not everyone's out there judging you. It's it's okay to let your hair down and and be yourself. And they sometimes I get a little sad because my my daughter is a very has always been a very free spirit, like a little sprite running around. She's 15 now, but she would die if she knew I was saying this. Um, but 
she, you know, when she was little, um, I think about if I put her in the school where I was teaching at, like, well, I mean, like, I know she couldn't have, I, I just, I don't know what would have happened in your mind. But when people say that was not a great train of thought, but when people say to me, I bet you were just like her growing up. I, I get a little sad because I don't really know what I would have been like had I not had, you know, we were little adults all the time. And I, I don't know, maybe I would have been a free spirit like her. I, I don't know. I don't know. I think, yes, a lot of people leaving these situations will say to me, I don't know who I am. Like, I don't know if I like to have fun. I don't know if I find that funny or if I like to eat that. I don't know if I'm a risk taker or not. I just didn't have a chance to explore it. And so I think being able to figure out who you are at any age is a really nice thing. And it's true that you probably have some character traits that are like your daughter that you didn't really get a chance to express because you didn't have the freedom to do it. I wonder about how you are raising her in connection with how you were raised, because I'm sure there are some very purposeful decisions that you're making, even in the way you talk about things. That's been the hardest thing in life, I think. And the hardest thing in, in therapy was thinking that I was not a good parent or I wasn't a good mother because I didn't fit the mold in which I had always tried to fit in. Yeah, a lot of intent. We, we made a lot of intentional choices when. Gracie came along and, you know, ultimately she helped get us out too. Um, I just, you know, gradually at some point I said, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing it to her because I want her to be, I want her to be the free spirit that she is. And she is in a private school, but it's, it's nothing like, nothing like Bob Jones. She's allowed to be herself. And, but overcoming the fear that I was going to not be a good parent, that was really hard for a long time for me. I still struggle with that sometimes that, well, I mean, you know, when you leave, because you've seen people do it, you know that you are the bad, you're the bad guy. And in most of these churches, you're worse than an infidel because you had the truth and you walked away from it. So they'll even be friends, you know, or be cordial to people who aren't saved, as they would say, um, because that's a ministry, but you had the truth and you chose to walk out. So of course, I also grappled with like, Gracie's eternity, like, if I step out of this circle where they told me this is where the truth is and it's not over here, am I dooming her? You know, just, um, so that's, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard, um, being a parent coming out of that. And I don't know. I've probably leaned on the side of being way too lenient, but she's, she's a great, wonderful free spirit who, who loves us. It's nice. Yeah. And it's hard to know what's too lenient when you've been in such a restricted space. There's so many rules. And that the way you can sometimes gauge if you've been able to be a good parent is that you read your child, that you see if they're thriving, if they do love you, if they respect you, if they are doing okay in the world. Uh, and also if they're not doing okay, if you are able to jump in and help them through those moments or get them whatever resources they might need. I mean, that it's a conversation that you have just between you, not incorporating what a church says, what a pastor says, what anyone else says, who you're supposed to go to for advice, that it really is this very holy connection, but that it really, in, in terms of the other way of looking at a whole, like, this is the whole connection you should be having. Like, mm, I want to get to know my kid and see what they're telling me about if things are going well or not. And I'm not going to leave it up to somebody else. 
Yeah. And I mean, really, honestly, as faculty staff kids, it almost seems as though we were, we joke about it being a big experiment. Like, you know, every kid in our whole school had the exact same rules dictated to them day, night. You know, it was, it was, I don't know the good way to say this, but it's almost like a big experiment because the institution actually raised all of us. Our parents didn't make any of the rules for the most part. Again, if you're, you know, depending on who your family was, but yeah, we were actually raised by this institution. Wow. Incredible. Okay. So I know we're finishing up on our time and I didn't know if there was something else that you wanted to, to mention before we wrap things up. And if not, then I just had a a question for you. Yeah, sure. You know, there are people who listen to this podcast who have loved ones who are involved in things that they feel that have taken them over and they want to know how to reach out. And yes, there are also people who are listening who are kind of coming out of something or are considering coming out. But I'm wondering now that you're out of it, if someone had talked to you during the time that you were in, in a way that would have really helped you know the world is not such a scary place and you're not a bad person and you don't deserve this, what would have been helpful for you to hear, do you think, from someone on the outside? I would tell them if they're at school and they feel like they have no one, because I was there for a long time, I I felt like I didn't have anybody on the outside, anybody. I would say, if you're, if you're surviving there at all, you are a hardworking, disciplined person because it's difficult to get through there. So you've got the skills that you need and you can start over. It doesn't matter how badly you mess up. There are all kinds of people and organizations and churches that will let you start over with a clean slate, no matter what, because that's ultimately what the Bible and God is about. It's it's being forgiven and it's gone. It's not like a scar on your back. It's gone. And you can start over. You've got all the skills that you need to go have a productive life and, and have fun and meet all kinds of new people and try all kinds of different things. It's just a little bit of a time. You will be fine on the other side. You Trust me. And it's so scary to start over, but Starting over was the, in hindsight, was the best thing we we did. It's the best thing we ever did, even though it was so painful at the time. Right, and you're not a bad person for having left. You haven't left having a relationship with you know with God or religion, if that matters to you. Like n- nothing, nothing leaves you except, I guess, just being in a space that keeps you from being able to feel like you can handle life on your own or that you are trustworthy and, you know, like now you get to really have confidence in a way that you probably really fully couldn't before. So I'm so happy that you have done a lot of work to get where you are. It is, it is hard, especially born into a situation, uh, a whole universe that is different, that really guides you to feel certain ways and think certain things and that you dug your heels in like, "Mm -mm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna carry this, this burden with me for the rest of my life. I need to figure out how to feel free. Then that you get to raise your child in that environment of freedom, which is such a nice gift. So, you know, one of the things that is good, I think, to do is to kind of qualify what we're talking about here, that a lot of people who have been in difficult relationships, in cultic groups, in fundamentalist branches of things, while some of their experiences were really damaging and some of the things that they heard happening 
to their loved ones or to friends is really traumatic and and awful. And at the same time, there were undoubtedly some nice moments, which we hope for. We hope that someone's life wasn't dismal from start to finish every single day, every single moment. And so, Erin, are there things that you recollect that were actually nice for you? Growing up on campus, one of the great things was all the culture that we had. My dad directed operas. So I've developed appreciation for all kinds of things that I'm sure I would not have Shakespeare plays. There were a lot of great things. And I've also found as a creative that the tighter of a box you're in, the more creative people get. So we, we had a blast somehow, still whitewater rafting in long skirts. You know, we still managed to have a lot of fun growing up. And I think I don't want to negate or invalidate people who had good experiences. There certainly were a lot of good experiences. I do have a lot of great friends that I'm still friends with, a lot of great memories from my travels overseas. And I don't want to overshadow any of that. But the fact is that more and more stories are coming out. It's just, it's not a safe environment for people who've been victims of assault or anything like that. It's just not a safe place for people like that. Right. And, you know, part of what you're talking about too is that kids, even adults, like you're saying, in restrictive environments, they do find a way to have some freedom and people do get more and more creative the the more strict the situation is around you, which says so much about the very human need to have some freedom and to see what you can do and to find loopholes and things uh, just to be able to know how much freedom you have. And it it does tap into the creative mind. And just the the vision of whitewater rafting in a long skirt, I'm going to now always have with me because I just love it. I think it's perfect that they're trying to provide fun, right? For kids. Right. With parachute pants underneath them. Oh, wow. And shoes. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, we were very modest. <laughs> yes, you were. Nobody had seen anything when we were white. Uh, wow. <laughs> I can only imagine, too, if you got all wet, how heavy that was all going to be, you know. like smelled goodness. great. Yeah. <laughs> the bus ride home was always great. <laughs> I am sure it was highly pleasant. Okay, good. So it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Where can people find you and what you're doing out there? I'm a florist. I own a business called The Bloom Shop, and I... I kind of just do a lot of different little things there. So I can give you my Instagram and I have a Facebook page to keep up with all the fun artsy projects that I'm working on. I have um, illustrated three children's books. So I stay busy with that, doing school visits and fun things, fun things with the books and then decorating for holidays, painting a mural, whatever, whatever someone wants, I'll try it. (laughs) So. That sounds so good. Okay, good, good. It was a pleasure to talk to you and really great to get to know you and uh, hope to talk to you again. Thank you so much for having me. One more thing before you go. It is a really important discussion, I think, that Erin and I had. And she comes from a place of being the child of faculty 
seeing not only how she was treated, but how her parents were treated. There's something uniquely difficult, I think, about seeing something that those you love are so devoted to, only to see them over time taken advantage of, working tirelessly, and really not getting what they deserve to get. Not getting enough, I think, probably at times to have a comfortable living wage. So many of the people I talk to who were hired on as staff people in their cultic groups really talked about how it was never a nine-to-five job. They were expected to be there at all hours. They're expected to be on call. They're expected to work weekends. They're expected to be available for anyone at any time. They're also expected to tolerate not being able to take vacation time, not being able to take sick time. They were expected to tolerate being underpaid, not getting insurance at times, not getting any kind of retirement. And that is if you get paid at all, which I've also heard stories of that too, of just being used for free labor and still being made to feel guilty that you're not doing more. I found it so fascinating to hear Erin talk about, first of all, this grace report that she is able to have a copy of, which is quite amazing. But the idea that as things were going forward to really be investigated, the school fired the grace team, the investigative team. So that speaks volumes about wanting things to remain hidden. One of the other things that can happen too, and the reason I think sometimes a negative action at a school like this can remain hidden is because there are so many ways that people in charge will manipulate their audience into thinking that everything is wonderful and everything is good. And so people do look the other way. People assume the best. People assume that the people in charge are meaning well and are doing good things. And so that also causes people, I think, to not lean in, to not feel they even need to investigate until they start to hear stories of misconduct. And then when they have a chance to have it investigated, it's stopped by the school. One of the things that Erin said that I want to come back to for a moment is When she was talking about the leadership saying that they care about paying the PhDs on their staff as much as the janitorial staff, one would think after hearing that, that that means that they pay the janitorial staff as well as a PhD would make at a university. We all want to believe that that's what this person in a position of authority meant. We all want to believe that when someone says something like that, that they really are coming from this place of great conscience. And we will sometimes fill in the blanks. When there isn't enough absolute information, we'll fill in the blanks with our bias. If we want to believe that a religious institution is generous to all, then we will assume that means that the janitor makes as much as a PhD would make. But in truth, what that meant was, that everyone on staff made as little as a janitor. 
And we all know that janitors make far too little for all the work they do and all the devotion and all the patience they have and all of the cleaning up after everyone that they do. It can feel like a thankless job. But when someone is up there giving this speech about being righteous and being generous and saying that the PhDs make as much as the janitors, right? Don't you think, oh, how wonderful. But no. And there is a lie built in to that phrase because it really should be that the PhDs don't make as much as the janitors. They make as little. So what we want to do is when someone makes these sort of lofty claims, we want to research what that means. Is this a place that you can really trust? Is it a place where they really care? And sometimes when you just scratch the surface, you find out the true nature of a place, just like Aaron did over time. But it's hard to look at it. You don't want to see that the place basically that you were raised, that was your home, is a place that doesn't mind taking advantage and doesn't mind covering up and doesn't mind keeping the victims voiceless. I'm so glad that Erin is using her voice now. Thank you so much, Erin, and to everyone who comes forward who wants to tell their story too. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www dot podpage dot com forward slash indoctrination.